If you would now join me in Nehemiah chapter 6. If you're new or visiting, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah since Easter. It's that story of how God worked through a man to take the broken walls and the burned gates of Jerusalem that was causing the people distressed to be restored. And we're looking at this not simply from a physical perspective, but from the perspective that as those walls were broken and burned, we have broken and burned people all around us in our own lives, our neighbors, our family, co-workers, folks who are broken and burned in need of restoration. And we're learning from all that Nehemiah did, what it means to be the people of God who restore the broken and burned in our world. When we come to chapter six, we get, if you will, an update on where they are in the progress of restoring the broken and the burned. And it says in verse one, the second part, he says, I had rebuilt the wall and no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. So chapter six is about Nehemiah finishing the work that he had begun. And this is now part two from chapter six of a message we started last week on finishing well. And so I can't reteach the three points from last week. I'll review them and then we'll look at the next three points. But the big picture is this. Don't miss this. When we talk about finishing well, we're not simply thinking the end of life because Nehemiah is far from the end of his life. We're acknowledging that to finish well, there is no extra special sauce. It's simply living well to the very end. So wherever we are in life, whatever season of life we are, whether we're not married yet or married, beginning a family, whether our kids are leaving home, wherever you are in your journey, it's chapter six is teaching us how do we live well. And here were quickly the three points from last week. Number one, that I live well and therefore will finish well when I live with clarity and commitment to my God-ordained purpose. I cannot live well until I understand that I have been made for a relationship with God and I enter into that relationship with God. I can live, I just can't live well until... I enter into relationship with God and fulfill the purpose for which he created me. Good works that he created before the foundation of the world. Second, I can only live well and therefore finish well when I reject believable lies. Some lies are easy to reject. Other lies are far more powerful in our lives. And the only way you and I will learn to effectively reject believable lies is that we know the truth. Because it's the truth that will help us identify that which is not. And then third, I will live well and therefore finish well when I do not allow fear or discouragement to cause me to shrink back. Now let me just, by the way, again, quick review. I ask by way of quick survey, how many of you had ever shrunk back because of fear or discouragement? And 100% of us could acknowledge fear and discouragement have caused us to shrink back from doing what we know God wanted us to do. That's the normal path. And so let's jump back into the text now and see how Nehemiah does not shrink back. It says, for all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. So the normal path is I'm doing something, then I grow afraid and that fear leads to discouragement and that discouragement stops me from continuing to shrink back from doing what God wants. That's the normal path. But Nehemiah did not. What did he do instead? How's the verse finished? Verse 9. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. This is a prayer that I want to encourage you, because you know, that's a prayer. 
It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point, and I think it's portable for you and I. That, that you and I, when we face challenges in life, when you get afraid, like I get afraid, when you get discouraged, like I get discouraged, and you would be tempted to shrink back, that you would simply pray these words. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. First two words, but now. What's he saying? The normal path is fear and discouragement could cause me to shrink back. I don't want to be normal. And if I'm not going to be normal, what do I need? I need God's help when? Now. But now. That might seem obvious or unimportant. But let me tell you how this works out in real life. Maybe you have, maybe not, but maybe you've started some time with the Lord as a regular practice in your day in the morning. You get up. Maybe you read a verse, maybe you read a chapter, maybe you journal, you listen to something, and you pray about the challenges that will be coming that day. Maybe you have something difficult at work, or you know you're going to have a hard conversation, or there's tension in your marriage, or you're struggling with your kids, something that's going to be hard. And so you pray about it that morning as part of your time. Maybe you write it in a journal. That's all great. but there's something about praying about it in the morning that's different than when it's happening in the moment, right? In the moment, it, was, it just seemed all clear and like right and good and you were courageous and you were strong while it was just you and God in the darkness. But now when like that person is in front of you and the emotions have, have raised up and now it's frustration and it's hard, it's easy to go... Uh, I prayed about it then. Now I'm just responding in the flesh. What do we need in that moment? But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. I, I misspoke Thursday night when I was teaching this. I said, I've been in that situation where I'm so frustrated and I want to wring their neck and what do I need to pray? But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. And the guy comes up after me and says, you might want to work on that because I don't think that's what you need in that moment. And I'm thinking, well... Okay, I give up. So yeah, you might want to strangle somebody. Oh God, strengthen my hands to not strangle them. All right, let me finish the thought. You see that there's one thing to pray beforehand. But I'm serious, in the face of temptation, learning to, but now, but now. Here's my simple point. It's not part of your fill in the blanks. You can write it down. You can forget it. Uh, But I hope you'll practice. I will remain normal until I learn to cry out to God in my time of need. Not just before, but in my time of need. This has been the practice of Nehemiah. Remember when the king said to him, what would you request? He sees he's downcast. He's fallen. He's discouraged. And the king asked him why. He says, my city's in ruin. The people are distressed. And the king Ask him, what do you need? And if you ever want somebody to ask you what you need, you you want it to be a king because they have resources. What do you need? What do you request? What's he do? He prays. I promise you, Nehemiah had prayed about that hundreds of times in the months leading up to the king asking that question. But there is no replacement in preparing prayer for the in the moment prayer, but now. Same thing, chapter four, all of them conspire together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God in response to that which is hard in your life. I'm not dismissing. Take it to the Lord in the morning. I'm not dismissing. Make it a matter of regular prayer. I am adding that probably we most need to pray in the moment. We pray when it's easy, but when it's hard, we we often, that's that's not when we, but now. So don't miss those two words, but now. And then what? But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that is a 
prayer that God wants to answer for Nehemiah to strengthen his hands. Yes. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most, how much do you think God wants to answer that prayer? 10. See, I can pray about things that like this afternoon, Lord, we're going to have 30 people to the house. It'd be great if there was no rain. Lord, but now, oh God, don't let it, don't let it rain. One to 10. What certain do I have that God wants to answer that prayer? <laughs> yeah. Less than 10? Yes. Way, way less than, oh God, strengthen my hands. Why am I making that point for this reason? I want you to write, if you like to write in your Bible, let me, let me invite you to write this reference, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, beside Nehemiah 6, 9. Because this is a prayer, oh God, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. And I think it's the prayer that we learn to pray when we, don't miss this, when we know it's a prayer that God wants to answer. Here's what 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask parentheses again according to his will we know that we have the request which we have asked from him see as we grow in Christ I want us to learn that there are some prayers that we pray that we don't know what God wants to do there. Should we pray those prayers? Yes. Certainly. We ask. There are other prayers that we pray where we 100% know what God wants to do. And we pray those prayers, how? With confidence, believing. So let me give you some quick real life examples. When we know the will of God regarding fear, discouragement, and worry, and what is the will of God that we know? That they not cause us to shrink back. We know that. When we know the will of God regarding that we are to serve as God has gifted us, when we know the will of God regarding sharing the gospel with, God, with people that God has placed around us, when we know the will of God regarding go and make disciples, when we know the will of God regarding helping the poor, the weak, and the broken, when we know the will of God when how we should work when we go to work, and when we know the will of God how we ought to respond to our bosses, when we know the will of God regarding marriage and purity and forgiveness and fidelity. When we know the will of God regarding parenting, being patient and harsh words, when we know what God's will is and we are struggling to do it. Now, Paul's right there. Any of those things you've ever like struggled to do? Yes. <laughs> sure. If we're not admitting that, we've lost touch with reality. And now let me make it more real. Any of those that you are failing. See, it's safe to say in church, yes, I struggle. Yes, pray for me. I'm struggling. Uh, here's more real. I'm failing. I'm blowing up on my kids. We're not just struggling in our marriage. We're growing apart. And my boss, there's no respect there. And I'm not really working, I'm just mailing it in. So we know these things. We know the will of God. But we often find in life hard and we fail. What do we pray? But now, not next week, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands to love my spouse, to be faithful to my spouse, strengthen my hands to not lose it and blow up and, and speak harsh words. Strengthen my hands. So this, quite frankly, might, might want be one of the most portable prayers 
that we could take with us. Almost everybody who grows up in church knows the Lord's Prayer. It's a good prayer. This one's a little shorter. (laughs) Gets a little to the point. Oh, God. But now, oh, God, strengthen my hands. I hope, I hope, I hope you will learn that prayer because if you and I are going to live well in the realities of life, we're going to have to learn to believe God will, not God might. God will give me all I need. See, that's why I can ask with confidence because I know he will give me all I need to do all he commands. I don't know if you recognize, but we sang that in the song that Matt wrote. That God will give us all we need to do all he commands. So, it's not that... (laughs) It's not that I don't experience fear. It's that fear doesn't cause me to shrink back. It's not that I don't experience discouragement. It's that it doesn't cause me to shrink back. Why? Because I know that when I need what I need in that moment is God's will. I can ask with confidence, certainty. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. It's the prayer for marriage. It's the prayer for parenting. It's the prayer when you go to work. It's the prayer when you engage your neighbors. It's the prayer. It's the prayer that I prayed this morning before teaching. It's the prayer that I prayed yesterday before a funeral. It's the prayer that I pray before I go knock on a neighbor's door. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Because all of us are tempted to shrink back. The Lord will give us what we need to do all he says. So, big picture. Big picture is this. Nehemiah is about done. Sam, Ballot, Tobiah, his enemies are trying to, to not allow him to finish. So they tried to frighten him, in, or to distract him by calling him away. And he goes, no, I'm a purpose-driven man. I'm not a preservation-driven man. And so then they, they tried to frighten him by writing the open letter that would scare him. And he says, nope, those are lies. They're believable, but they're lies. Now, uh, Sam Ballad and Tobiah change tactics. Go to your text, verse 10 now of chapter 6. New tactic, here it is. When I, that is Nehemiah, entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, this is, what, this is now to, me, to Nehemiah, let us meet together in the house of God, within, where? The temple, and let us close the door of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. So if you won't be distracted and come meet with us and you won't be intimidated by an open letter, they're just going to come and murder you at night. Common sense says do what? Hide. Hide at a place where they can't come and get you. Come hide in the temple. Nehemiah's response. But I said, should a man like me flee? Question number one, should a man like me run scared? Second, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? Two questions, one conclusion. I will not go in. Why not? What's the answer to this first question? Should a man like me flee? What's he mean? Like, I'm tough, I don't run. I don't think he's saying, I'm tough, I don't run. I think he's saying what he had said from the start. I'm not preservation-driven, I'm purpose-driven. In other words, I don't live in order to protect my life. I live in order to fulfill God's purpose in my life. And if that means I die, then to quote Queen Esther, I die. If I perish, I perish but I will fulfill God's ordained purpose 
in my life. He's saying, should a man who is purpose-driven his life flee as if he's preservation-driven his life? I challenged us with that question last week if you weren't here. It's a question I want us to keep asking ourselves. By what I say yes to and what I say no to, what am I demonstrating? What drives me? God's purpose for my life or my desire to protect and preserve it? And not just my life, but my lifestyle. Preservation-driven or purpose-driven? He's going, should a man who is purpose-driven flee? I won't go in. What was the second question? Could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? What's he mean? Simply this. Nehemiah understood what God's word said regarding going into the temple and closing the doors. That was reserved for priest. And Nehemiah was, a, was the governor. He was not a priest. Nehemiah understood what maybe you, because you're not Jewish, don't understand. He understood that if out of fear of Samballot and Tobiah's threat to murder me, I disobey God and go in and hide in the temple acting as a priest when I am not a priest, then I am exchanging at risk of Nehemiah, at risk of Samballot taking my life to God taking my life. I'll take my risk with Samballot. That's, that's bottom line right there. I'll take my risk with man. But I fear God. And I mean that in the truest, best sense that we'll unpack in a couple of weeks. I fear God. So I won't go in. And then he concludes something. Look at the beginning of verse 12. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. Who, who, who was Shemaiah? He was a prophet. In other words, he was supposed to be speaking on behalf of God. But now, because of what he says, Nehemiah goes, this isn't a man sent from God. This is a prophet, but he is posing as if he's speaking God's word. He's not. How does he know he's not speaking God's word? This reason. Let no one say when he is tempted. Is Nehemiah being tempted? Yes. Be preservation driven. Do what you know is wrong because it would save your life. All of us would be tempted with that. I know it's wrong, but wow, God would understand. You ever thought that? I know that's not best, but I think God would understand. He's being tempted. And the scripture says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For here's a, a timeless truth that we can always hold on to. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So Nehemiah rightly discerns, ah, I know this man is not speaking truth to me because he is encouraging me, he is tempting me in a way that God would Never tempt me. So why is he doing it? He uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. What had been their mindset? Next verse, verse 13. Here's the mindset. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened. See, it always comes down to what? Fear, because it's a hundred percent effective in our lives, or it has been, doesn't always have to be. That I might become frightened and act accordingly. Sin. So that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. I, uh, 
Sam Ballard is a devious dude, and we have a uh, deceitful enemy. And here it is. I'm going to first distract you. Get you off of your God-ordained purpose. Some of you are off your God-ordained purpose. You've been distracted by either the love of stuff, the love of riches, or just the busyness of life. Worries and cares have consumed you. You're off your purpose-driven life. You've been distracted and you've stopped. Enough said. Some of you have been frightened into shrinking back to preserve your life. But if that hadn't been true, here's the final, here's the final attempt. What if I can get you, if I can't distract you, and if I can't deceive you, then maybe I can discredit you. How? You're the leader. People have been following you because they recognize what we sang, the good hand of the Lord upon you. That's what people saw in Nehemiah. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. But then they see that same man run scared for his life, hiding in the temple. And the work stops because the people recognize the leader doesn't have the credibility that we thought. Recognize what's going on here. Whatever form, whatever role of leadership or credibility you have, our enemy will always tempt us to justify sin. If we're going to live well, I'm going to have to refuse, learn to refuse to excuse or justify sinful behavior in my life. that will do what? Discredit me. Sinful behavior that will discredit your testimony at work. That will cause you to go, I can't speak up anymore. Or you do still try to speak up and people say things like, yeah, right. We know this is true. So what is it that causes us to justify or excuse sin? Probably comes from one of three reasons. Number one, we excuse or justify sin because of our upbringing, because of our, how we were raised. Or simply like this, hey, I'm Italian, it's just what we do. You ever, ever heard that? Yeah, we just explode on people. It's not sin. No, exploding on people is exploding on people. I don't care where you come from. Or, it's just what my parents did. They weren't faithful. I'm not going to be faithful. Sometimes it's our upbringing. Or, it's our circumstances. Our current circumstances. And, and I think all of us can relate. We're, we're impatient. And we go, I, I know, I know I shouldn't be impatient. I'm just so stressed. Or we're tired. Or we're sick. I have found myself saying, don't talk to me when I'm sunburned because I am like short when I'm sunburned. I don't mean short. I'm always short. I'm <laughs> relationally short when I'm sunburned. So, so I'm, I'm allowed to be rude to you if I'm sunburned. I would never really say those things, but I would probably 
excuse my shortness because I'm sunburned. That seems so minor. But don't we do that? Did you ever find yourself justifying, excusing your sin that then discredits us with our kids, our spouse, co-workers? So it's our upbringing, our, our circumstances, or, or probably, uh, maybe this is most of all, other people's actions. They, they excuse us. I know I blew up, but... And then it's what they did. We almost always excuse harsh words for what somebody else did. And all they did, watch, all they did was reveal what was in you. They just, they just brought it out. Now, I, I want us to be... Uh, I want to be exceedingly clear here. So if, if you've wandered off, if your head rolled out of the room, roll it back in here for a moment. <laughs> I'm not saying if you sin, you're discredited. <laughs> All of us have sinned and continue. What, what's the problem here? Excusing or justifying, because when we excuse it or justify it, then what don't we do? We don't confess it. And it's that unconfessed sin in our life that then moves from visitor to acquaintance to full-time there. It just begins to grip. And when actually when we're sin and we're humble and we confess it, That doesn't discredit. That reveals a broken, open humility before the Lord and to one another. So friends, it's not that we sin. It's that we excuse it and justify it so that we don't confess it. And we live, maybe this is a little awkward between, if you're married, between you and your spouse right now because you know there's, there is known sin, there's known brokenness in the relationship, but each of you are justifying what you did wrong because of what they did. And you're just waiting for the other person to go first because they were worse than you. So you have invented in your own minds. I'm encouraging you. Don't excuse it. Don't justify. Don't say, I'm sorry, but and then put their sin in front of them. Simply own your own sin. Own how you have brought brokenness to the relationship. Own it. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to them. And allow the work of God to happen in their life as has happened in yours. Okay? Nehemiah just demonstrates for us I'm not going to excuse. I mean, how many of us would have been in our own heart going, Nehemiah, ah, you were in a hard spot. We get it. We understand. How easy would have been for him to have said, this doesn't get done if I'm not leading. And if I'm dead, I can't lead them. And so they need me. I know this is what the Lord wants, but they need me. We can, we can tell ourselves all sorts of rational lies that get us to where we sin and God will understand, other people will understand and will, will not live well or finish well. Nehemiah finished well because he did not step into justifiable or excusable sin. He does say this, last verse in this section, verse 14. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sambalat according to these works of theirs. Remember, God, what these, are, these guys are doing against me, against your people. Remember, oh God, all that they have done and also Noadiah the prophetess. So there was somebody else involved that's not uh, 
introduced in the text until this prayer of Nehemiah. Remember them? Oh, and remember that woman too. And the rest of the prophets who were trying to, and there it is. It just comes down to this. If you take anything away from this two-part series, I hope you'll take this. Fear. Fear will almost always be the entryway into your heart that will stop the work of God. Fear is our greatest competitor to living well and finishing well. And it might be a different type of fear. Your fear may be different than my fear. But it is fear that Nehemiah repeatedly recognizes in chapter 6 that is the threat to finishing well, therefore living well. So when he says, remember, oh my God, these guys, what is he saying? (laughs) Simply this, in the language of the New Testament, I'll show you in a moment. He's saying, I'm going to leave room for God to settle the score with those who sin against me. Because what do you and I want to do? We want to settle the score. We want to get people back. And he's going, remember, oh God. Now, let me let you write that down, and then I'm going to help us hopefully see why this is so vital, to leave room. I'm not going to shrink back in fear. Sorry, it's just so hard for me to shut up and just let you write. (laughs) All right, I think you're done. I'm not going to shrink back in fear, but watch. Nor am I going to step in to God's space to do what God does. Settle the score. You know, you know, when people harm us, when people sin against us, and we're not willing to leave room for God, we want to take control. You know what happens? Then all of our creative energy then all our thought, then what we give our attention to is to how we're going to get them. And if we're giving our thought to that, guess what? We've taken our eye off the ball of our God-ordained purpose. It's not only It's not only that we leave room for the grace, uh, for the work of God, for the revenge of God, for the wrath of God. It's not only that we leave room for God to do what he does. It's that we keep our eye on our purpose. Because as soon as we give attention to that, now Nehemiah is laying at wait thinking How can I get those guys back instead of thinking, how do we finish the wall? It's just, it's insightful for me to go, when I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, what am I thinking about? I should have said that. Verses. What's God called me to? How will the purposes of God be fulfilled in my life tomorrow? Leaving room is keeping my eye on my clear purpose. Point number one. Now, why did I say this is New Testament language to to allow, to leave room for God to settle the score? Because Romans 12 says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, when they sin, it's not my responsibility to punish their sin. Leave room for God to punish Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And and, and here's where it gets very real. When I not only leave room for the wrath of God, that is, I don't take revenge. I keep my eye on the purpose. It's a next step. 
Paul writes in Colossians 3, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Now, let me bring this to attention before we finish reading. If you have placed faith in Jesus to be your sin bearer, to be the substitute who took the penalty that you deserve for your sin, if Jesus is your Savior, if you are a new person in Christ, you are, this, this is to you right now, all right? You have been chosen, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgiven us, forgive them. This is the Lord is forgiven. Forgive. If we're going to live well, and therefore finish well. Let's leave room for God to do what God does. And not hold grudges and not live in brokenness as much as it depends upon us. Let's be people of forgiveness because lack of forgiveness will rob you and I Lack of forgiveness will rob us of the joy of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the work of God through us. And we forgive. We forgive. Not because they're necessarily forgivable. <laughs> Why do we forgive? Because he has forgiven us. See, now, I started this text very clearly for this reason, directing it to believers. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not experienced the forgiveness of God, I would have zero expectation that you would give to somebody else what you haven't received yourself. In the same way, I would have every, God would have every expectation that you who have received forgiveness who were unforgivable, who received forgiveness, would not withhold that which you have received. So we live well as we forgive as we have been forgiven, leaving room for God's work among those who've sinned against us. So let's take a few minutes together and remember the Lord's forgiveness of us. We're going to share in... Communion, the Lord's Supper together. Uh, the way we do that here at the chapel is men are going to come forward now and, and pass two trays, uh, a tray of unleavened crackers broken up into pieces, and then behind that a tray of little cups of juice. As it's passed, I invite you to take these. Now, uh, as we do this, hey guys, maybe for a second, maybe over in North, let's just pause. Maybe if you're holding, just pause for a second. Okay. I want you to hear these words. Thanks. These do not save us. These are the symbols that remind us of the person of Jesus who saves us. That, that this unleavened crackers, the reminder of the sinless body of Christ broken on our behalf. This cup is the reminder of the blood of Jesus because he was sinless when he died. His death paid a penalty that he didn't owe, a penalty that we owed. It's a substitutionary death. He died in our place. We take this remembering the death of Jesus on our behalf through which we have forgiveness and newness of life. So, as the men pass it, before they start again, as they pass, here's what I want us to do. I want us to, first and foremost, remember our forgiveness. We need to go back there. It will soften the hardened heart. Remember what Christ has saved you from, what he has forgiven you. Because I know me. 
and I know all he has forgiven. That softens my heart. To then ask, is there anybody with I'm holding, withholding forgiveness from? And Lord, I can't do that. And as the men are passing, asking yourself this, any sin that I've not confessed because I've justified. That's what we want to do. We're not just doing a religious exercise. We're responding to the Lord, examining in our heart. Do that as the men pass, and then we'll take together in a moment. Thanks, guys. has brought uh, some person to mind regarding you need to forgive them. There's bitterness in your heart that you've been trying to pay them back. It's not only in this moment saying, Lord, I confess that. It's committing before him in this moment to say, Lord, I forgive them. Just don't admit to justifying sin. Confess it to him. And now, before we take you know, I think probably, you know where you need to say, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Where, though you know the will of God, you've either been struggling or failing to do the will of God. Maybe there's a temptation that's continuing to wreck your life. Would you ask the Lord to strengthen you? Say no to temptation. Maybe there's a a person in your life so hard to love. Would you pray that simple words, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Maybe there's a, a circumstance really difficult at work, difficult to do the right thing, or difficult to have a, a good attitude. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Jesus, thank you that you have not only paid the penalty for our sin. Thank you that, Father, you have 
poured your spirit into our hearts so that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. That we have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world. As we take these elements, we do so remembering that you not only have died for us, but you live in us in order to live your life through us. Thank you for your full and finished work on our behalf. Let's take in remembrance of him and then Matt and Dallas will sing a blessing over us. Let's take in remembrance. that you're here this morning grateful for the Lord I hope you experience the Lord here and the Lord goes with us we just sang that so uh, as you go be blessed uh, if we can pray for you in any way we have men and women between the auditoriums ready to pray with you I hope you experience the nearness and the peace of God through prayer if that's something we can serve you with you have a great uh, rest of the day God bless see you next time